I believe that is true. I do. I, uh, I think I know why you've come here today. I believe that you have come here to hear the truth from the Word of God. And that is just what I intend to give you. Let's begin with a question. What will you do with the mercy of God? What will you do with the mercy of God? Let's stand. Let's turn to Mark chapter 10. We're going to begin in verse 46 of Mark chapter 10. Story of a man named Bartimaeus. Then they came to Jericho, and Jesus, as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. And throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. You may be seated. Now here we find ourselves in Mark 10 in what we might refer to as a destination passage. It's a destination passage. There's a reason I, I say that. Where have we come from and where are we going? This section of Mark spans three chapters. Mark 8, 9, and 10. Mark sets this up very carefully for us. There are bookends. In Mark 8, we get our left bookend. Story of a blind man being healed by Jesus. We don't know his name. We just know that some people brought a blind man to Jesus and they begged Jesus to heal him. We read that Jesus spit on the man's eyes, touched him, and asked him, do you see anything? Do you see anything? The man says, uh, see something like people, but they look kind of like trees walking. And Jesus touches him again, and the man can see everything clearly. That's our left bookend. The bookend on the right, we just read. Story of this blind man, this beggar named Bartimaeus. 
Now, this is a very specific literary technique that Mark is using, these bookends. What they're intended to do is to direct our attention inward, okay? Three chapters, Mark 8, 9, 10. In the three chapters, what we find there are eight stories, okay? So what Mark is doing is he is using physical blindness to direct our attention to spiritual blindness. But instead of giving us a proposition and saying, this is what spiritual blindness is, be on your guard against it, be careful. Instead, he gives us these eight stories. He lines them up one after another, directly from the ministry of Jesus, in order to illustrate for us how spiritual blindness tends to manifest itself in our lives. So let's spend some time looking at this because this is significant. My own study of these, uh, these eight stories has uh, led me to believe that there are five descriptions or five definitions of spiritual blindness. So I'm going to give you those. And I'm going to show you where they come from. First description of spiritual blindness is uh, it, it's, it's when we set our mind on the things of man rather than on the things of God. This is big. Setting your mind on the things of man rather than on the things of God. We see this form of spiritual blindness three different times in these three chapters. Okay? First, we have Peter. It's a remarkable story, in fact. Uh, back in Mark 8, Jesus says to his disciples, uh, you know, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some people say uh, John the Baptist, some people say Elijah, some people say one of the prophets. And then he turns to them and he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, being the spokesman for the 12, as he often was, he says, you are the Christ. Now, over in Matthew's uh, gospel, where we have a comparative text, we get a little bit more over there, and Jesus is sort of amazed by what Peter has to say. And he says, this was revealed to you by my Father. So it's this, it's this remarkable moment here of clarity, and then suddenly Jesus predicts his death and resurrection, and Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. To which... Jesus says, it ain't like that. Get behind me, Satan, he says to him, which is to say, Peter, you're, you're acting adversarial toward God right now. Satan means adversarial. Peter is acting in a way that is in opposition to the things of God. And then Jesus says to him, you have not set your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Peter had some sight, but he also had some spiritual blindness, didn't he? The next time we see this specific form of spiritual blindness, it's when the disciples are arguing with one another about which of them is the greatest. Which is the greatest? Now, first, we might think, these guys are out of their mind. What makes you think you're great at all? You haven't done much. But... 
while on the surface it seems like they're acting like they have, you know, superpowers or something, it turns out they actually do. I mean, after all, Jesus did give them authority to preach the gospel and to cast out demons. You can do neither of those things without supernatural power. So they were doing some pretty great things, but their head was in the wrong space. They were missing it. They were blind. And so Jesus had to correct them. And he had to tell them that, look, if you want to be first, you're going to need to be last. If you want to be great, you're going to have to become the servant of all. So they're blind. And then the third time we see this same type of spiritual blindness, it's uh, with the brothers, James and John. And they hatch up a clever little scheme. And they come to Jesus and they say, now, uh, teacher, do for us whatever we ask you. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, well, grant that one of us will sit on your right and one of us will sit on your left when you come into your glory. Now, of course, they didn't think of Jesus coming into his glory like we think of him coming in his glory. They didn't think of him sitting at the right hand of the Father on his throne in heaven. They were thinking of Jesus coming into his glory right here on earth uh, in the immediate short term. He was the Messiah. Christ, God's anointed one, he was going to take the throne and restore Israel. So that's what they were asking for. But Jesus lets them know that uh, they don't know what they're asking for, as a matter of fact. And so he, he has to teach them again that even he himself did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that's the first definition that we come across here of spiritual blindness, setting your mind on the things of man rather than on the things of God. Now, the second type is one word, doubt. Doubt is a form of spiritual blindness. We see this unfold here in the story of uh, the boy who's possessed by a demon and his father. So Jesus, James, and John, they're coming down from the mountain because Jesus had just been gloriously transfigured before their eyes. And on their way down, the remaining nine disciples are here and there's a crowd and there's a discussion going on and it's kind of turning argumentative. And uh, there's some scribes and then someone speaks up and says, uh, you know, teacher, I, I brought my son to you because he's possessed by a demon. And this demon has been dealing with his boy violently. In fact, on one occasion, he'd thrown him into the fire. And on another occasion, he'd thrown him into the water. And he's like, I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. And then he says to Jesus, help us if you can. And Jesus looks at him and says, if you can. All things are possible for him who believes. And the man scrambles and says, I believe. Help my unbelief. So we see that the man, he's struggling with doubt. It's a form of spiritual blindness. The next type we see could be uh, described as having a rebellious attitude that resists the truth. 
a rebellious attitude that resists the truth. The Bible has a word for this. It's called hard-hearted. And we see this play out in uh, the beginning of Mark chapter 10. It's the Pharisees. They come to Jesus to test him. They say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus says, what did Moses command you? They say, well, Moses commanded us to write her a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus clearly tells them, he says, that's because your hearts were hard that Moses commanded you that. But in the beginning, it was not this way. In the beginning, God created them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. And Jesus corrects them and points out their spiritual blindness, which is that they have a rebellious attitude that is resistant to the truth, even going so far as using the word of God to justify doing what they want to do. The fourth type that we come across here in this section of Mark, of spiritual blindness, is hindering others from coming to Jesus. When we hinder others from coming to the Lord, we are spiritually blind. We see this form two times. The first time, people are bringing their children to Jesus so that he can lay his hands on them and bless them. That would be a common thing for people to do with a a popular rabbi. But the disciples, they rebuked the people. And Jesus, he got angry about that. And he said, do not hinder them from coming to me. In fact, you need to be more like them in a sense. Or you're never going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then the next time, there's a man. And uh, John says, he says, teacher, we saw a guy and he was casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he wasn't one of us. Same thing. Jesus says, do not stop him. Because anyone who does a mighty work in my name will not soon after that be able to say something evil about me. If he's not against us, he's for us. So they were spiritually blind and trying to prevent others from drawing near. And finally, we come to this rich man. And this rich man shows spiritual blindness because he is unwilling to leave everything for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. Unwilling to leave everything behind for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. That's a form of spiritual blindness. Money has played a pretty good role in my life. I like to say that I have given God several opportunities to make me a rich man. He has yet to take me up on my offer. (laughs) But I wonder, one day if he does, will I be faithful? And will I be willing to not hold on to those things? Will I see myself as a, a steward of the money and not an owner of the money? Radically different things. Am I a steward of these resources? Or do I own these resources? What exactly is going on here? At any rate, 
That's spiritual blindness. So if you think about it, these descriptions or definitions, these are very broad. In fact, they're so broad, they, 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 they feel like massive sinkholes. As I started reflecting on these five things, I start to wonder how much of my life have I actually spent entirely outside of one of these? Setting my mind on the things of man versus the things of God. Doubt, having a rebellious attitude that resists the truth. Hindering others from coming to Jesus. Unwillingness to leave everything for the sake of Christ and the gospel. Guilty. 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 Well, between marriage and money, family and friendship, there's no shortage of opportunities to show our own blindness. But let's get back to this literary structure for a minute that Mark has put together for us. So we just spent our time in the middle portion, and we find that spiritual blindness is the main idea. But what about these two bookends, these two stories of healing these blind men? And specifically today, the story of Jesus healing this blind man named Bartimaeus. What, what about those? What is the contrast that Mark is setting up for us? And I think once you understand what's happening now, you'll see clearly that the story of, uh, of Bartimaeus is not a story of fragmented belief. Because that's really what's happening in the eight stories in the middle, isn't it? It's, it's, they're stories of fragments of belief, partial belief. It's, it's not a clean black and white line, unbeliever. It's like people kind of believe, right? I believe, help my unbelief. You are the Christ, surely not now. You will never die, right? It kind of it describes us in a lot of ways. Fragments of belief or fragments of unbelief. But in the story of Bartimaeus, we don't have a fragment. We have whole belief. Do you see it? This man, this blind beggar, what we have here is an intact example of an imperfect man just like us who showed us all what true belief looks like. I wonder if, uh, I wonder if that's why Mark gives us his name, Bartimaeus. You know, we come across uh, a lot of people in these three chapters. But here, Mark says, look at this. This is his name. Pay attention. This is something to aspire to. See, in these three chapters, there's crowds, there's Pharisees, there's scribes, and then there's specific people, individuals, a demon-possessed boy and his dad, a child who Jesus took and put in the midst of his disciples in order to teach them a lesson, a man who's performing exorcisms in the name of Jesus, and a rich man. 
But all these people are nameless to us, aren't they? Until we get to this blind beggar and we find out that he has a name and his name is Bartimaeus. The text says, uh, and they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus! Son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him. Maybe tossed him a coin, perhaps. Be quiet. But he cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you and throwing off his cloak. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang to his feet and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And I wonder if Jesus had a smile on his face because he heard the faith of this man when he cried out for mercy. And Bartimaeus says to Jesus, Rabbi, Let me recover my sight. And Jesus says, go. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Bartimaeus is blind. So he hears a great commotion around him. I wonder if he thinks to himself, this is going to be a good day. I mean, he is a beggar, and a large crowd is a good start. But then he hears that it's Jesus who's passing by. Now, the people call him Jesus of Nazareth. Well, Bartimaeus, he calls him Jesus, son of David. This son of David, this is a messianic title. It means something. It means something very specific. In Old Testament prophecy, son of David was used to refer to the one whom God would send to ascend to the throne of King David to establish his kingdom forever and ever. It's an eschatological term. That means the last things. It's sort of an end times type scenario. So when the son of David comes in the Jewish mind, that's all she wrote 
It's about to get real good forever for us. So Bartimaeus, he's like, he's here. He's here. I know he's here. Why do I know he's here? Because Bartimaeus was an educated man. He was educated in the most important kind of way. He knew the word of God. He had heard and understood the word of God from 2 Samuel chapter 7 when the Lord said through his prophet Nathan to King David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Bartimaeus heard and understood the words of Isaiah 11. Bartimaeus heard and understood the words of Isaiah 35, which says, Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance. He will come with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then, when he comes, when the son of David comes, the eyes of the blind will be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Bartimaeus heard that, he understood it. So he throws off his cloak. Think about this. If I throw off my cloak and I get cold or need it, I say, honey, give me another cloak. But Bartimaeus is a blind beggar. He threw off his cloak. He threw off his blanket at night. He threw off his pillow. He threw off the thing where people would have cast their coins onto. And he tosses it to the ground along with the money in the dirt. And he springs to his feet and he runs to Jesus And he does the thing that the rich man was unwilling to do. He leaves everything behind for the sake of Christ. This is a remarkable story, this man Bartimaeus. He gives us an example, a true example of what genuine belief looks like. So now we have here Mark 8, 9, and 10. We have our bookends. We have our stories in the middle. Everything is pointing inward. We have spiritual blindness. We have fragments of belief. We have whole belief. Belief. This is it. We've arrived. Belief is in the crosshairs. You see how Mark did that? You see how he brought that to the forefront? So we need to spend a little bit of time here on belief. See, because I think that belief has always been a struggle for man, hasn't it? I mean, it was a struggle for them then, as we've just seen, and it's a struggle for us now. In philosophical terms, belief is the acceptance of a proposition. It's the acceptance of a proposition about 400 years before Christ. There was a man named Plato. Now, Plato was of the opinion that belief is the truth of anything. 
And this is where we get this idea that belief is the acceptance of a proposition. Now, Plato was a student of a man named Socrates, and Plato had a student of his own named Aristotle, and the line goes on. These are Greek philosophers. I think it's pretty much impossible to overstate the impact that these people have had on the way we think and perceive reality. Let me give you an example of philosophical belief. This one should land. If I recite the Apostles' Creed, if I say, I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, etc., etc. If I believe these things, I'm saying I accept that these statements are the truth. Of course you understand this. There's not a single person in this room that does not understand this. We say it all the time. I believe this. I don't believe that. We're saying I think this is true. I don't think that is true. We all understand it because we have all come up under the influence of Western philosophical thought. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It is what it is. So now you might ask, so what's the problem? Well, the problem is that the acceptance of a proposition does not make a Christian. That's a problem. I repeat, the acceptance of a proposition does not make a Christian. In other words, the biblical conception of belief begins with the acceptance of the message of the gospel, but it does not end there. The biblical criteria for belief involves accepting the message of the gospel and living like it's true. That is biblical belief. So we find that there is a considerable gap between philosophical belief and biblical belief. And we have to recognize it. And we have to subject it to the word of God. The story of blind Bartimaeus is a story of true biblical belief. Bartimaeus heard the word of God. He understood the word of God. He believed that the word of God was true. And he acted in such a way that was consistent with what he had heard and understood and believed to be true. This is biblical faith. His actions were consistent with the things he believed to be true. The word of God makes this very clear. Perhaps uh, there's no place more clear than in uh, James. I'd like to go there. I'm going to head over to James chapter 2 for a minute. Let's see how this plays itself out. 
in Scripture. James chapter 2, verse 14 through 17. Now James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Oh, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he believes that Jesus died for his sins but doesn't have a life that is consistent with what he says he believes? Can that faith or can that belief save him? James asks. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, Bartimaeus, go in peace, Bartimaeus, be, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith or belief by itself if it does not have works, is dead. Whoa. So wait a minute. James, the brother of Jesus, Jewish man, 2,000 years ago, probably writing from Jerusalem, is dealing with this thing that seems to be affecting us today? Sure he was. You know, those three guys I mentioned, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, they predated Christ by a few hundred years. Hellenism, this is Greek thought. It had already moved in. Alexander the Great brought in Greek thought. He Hellenized the world. Now, the Romans took over, and they were ruling over Israel at this time, but the Romans, they liked to keep the Greek culture. It's very attractive. We know something about that. So yeah. So James sees this and he's like, we have got to break this idea that the acceptance of the proposition is accepted as belief. So now he moves down here and he says in verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. He could not be any more clear. He gives us a word picture of a dead body. If you have, if you have seen a dead body, you see that we, we, we put a little makeup on it for the sake of those who love that person. But you see that body is spiritless and lifeless. And James says, you got to get this. If what you say you believe doesn't have a life that is in agreement with that, that is consistent, if your actions don't follow what you say you accept as the truth, you are no different than that dead body. Your faith, your belief, well, what can we say? You show up to the judgment in this condition. 
You are D-O-A. Dead on arrival. Now what? What will you do with the mercy of God? What will you do with the mercy of God? This is the key question because this question bridges the gap between philosophical belief and biblical belief. What will you do with the mercy of God? This question, if you will allow it, rightly frames the conversation and it gives the proper motivation for acting out your faith. What will you do with the mercy of God? I'd like to close us this morning with just a few examples of biblical belief from this body of believers. How about Donnie Irving? We heard from Donnie in the front end of this service. Donnie has left everything for the sake of Christ and the gospel. Thank you, Donnie, for giving us all an example of biblical belief. How about Jess? Jess is a young woman in this body who has adopted two young girls, and she fosters infants. Jess represents many more people in this body of believers who have adopted children and who foster them. Thank you, Jess, and the rest of you who are showing all of us what biblical belief looks like. Or how about this certain house church that I know that has now adopted Jess and said, hey, we see you. We see the work you're doing. We, we, we see that burden. There's many of us. We're going to come alongside of you and we're going to help you carry that burden and now that house church is trying to figure out what that looks like. Okay, so it looks like meals, you need someone to prepare dinner for you. Okay, it looks like uh, maybe some financial support, some encouragement, some yard cleanup. Who knows? Maybe that right there is a match made in heaven. Our house churches come alongside of our foster and adoption families. And we carry those burdens together. How about Jamie? Jamie is a woman in this body who shows up at 320 Fulton every week. 320 Fulton. Did that ring a bell? 320 Fulton is our local abortion clinic. Jamie shows up there every week. And she stands outside and she prays. And she pleads with God to close those gates of hell. Thank you, Jamie, for showing us what biblical belief looks like. How about Mark and Bonnie? Mark and Bonnie are involved with the work of evangelism to Muslim refugees right here in Grand Rapids. 
And they also take foreign exchange students into their home. Thank you, Mark and Bonnie, for showing us what biblical belief looks like. Or Gary and Kathy. Gary and Kathy lost their daughter to a tragic accident in her teens. And now Gary and Kathy, they minister, they minister to people here who are also grieving deeply. And they're doing that because of the mercy they have received from God. Thank you, Gary and Kathy. Well, how about my friend Joe? Joe, uh, Joe, he had some back pain for about a year, a year and a half. And uh, Joe just learned, well, it turns out that back pain, that's cancer. Stage four, terminal. What's Joe going to do with the mercy of God? I'll tell you what Joe is going to do with the mercy of God. Joe is going to rest in the mercy of God. And Joe is going to experience the body of Christians, of true believers, come around him and help him rest in the mercy of God until our Father calls him home. And there are many more examples of true biblical belief. And for that, I am truly encouraged and I am thankful. All of these stories, what they are is they are stories of people who have received the mercy of God and like this blind beggar named Bartimaeus, they are now following Jesus on the way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, you shine light into our lives through the truth of the Bible. Jesus, son of David, thank you for the mercy that you have given to us, that you have secured for us. We have it. If we accept that you are the Christ, if we accept that we are in need of a Savior, if we accept that you have given your life to cover our sins and that you offer us eternal life through faith in you, we accept that it is true. Now we ask that you would help us to live lives that are in agreement with this confession. Please help us to move from fragments of belief to whole belief. In the name of Jesus, I pray these things. Amen.